Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. Today's episode covers the big stop for Darwin in Australia, then heading home. Obviously, I should be playing Men at Work, A Land Down Under, but I can't afford the license fee. Hum a couple of bars to yourself instead. Darwin was impressed with Australia at first sight. Quote, At last, we anchored within Sydney Cove. We found the little basin occupied by many large ships and surrounded by warehouses. In the evening, I walked through the town and returned full of admiration at the whole scene. It is a most magnificent testimonial to the power of the British nation. Here, in a less promising country, scores of years have done many more times more than an equal number of centuries have affected in South America. My first feeling was to congratulate myself that I was born an Englishman, end quote. You can hear the self-confidence of Britain, the rising global power, a stark contrast to the modern decay. The new Australian colonies were potential beacons of prosperity and hope a place of food and the chance for men to become rich. It is in this section on Australia that Darwin writes what is to me some of his most interesting philosophical musing. He met a party of indigenous people and was impressed with their skills. He began to wonder why it was that indigenous peoples were almost always in decline after contact with newcomers. Quote, The number of Aborigines is rapidly decreasing. In my whole ride, with the exception of some boys brought up by Englishmen, I saw only one other party. This decrease, no doubt, must be partly owing to the introduction of spirits, to European diseases, even the milder ones of which, such as the measles, prove very destructive, and to the gradual extinction of the wild animals. It is said that numbers of their children invariably perish in very early infancy from the effects of their wandering life, and, as the difficulty of procuring food increases, so must their wandering habits increase, and hence the population, without any apparent deaths from famine, is repressed in a manner extremely sudden compared to what happens in civilised countries, where the father, though in adding to his labour, he may injure himself, does not destroy his offspring. Besides the several evident causes of destruction, there appears to be some more mysterious agency generally at work. Wherever the European has trod, death seems to pursue the Aboriginal. We may look to the wide extent of the Americas, Polynesia, the Cape of Good Hope and Australia, and we find the same result. Nor is it the white man alone that thus acts the destroyer. The Polynesian of Malay extraction has in parts of the East Indian archipelago thus driven before him the dark-coloured native. The varieties of man seem to act on each other in the same way as different species of animals, the stronger always extirpating the weaker. End quote. So, whilst the white explorers and colonists frequently committed genocides on vast scales, 
or introduced diseases, human history consistently shows that newcomers seem to devastate existing societies, from the migration of steppe peoples to conquests of China to the expanding Bantu peoples. There is something about human mass migration itself that destroys. What does that say about us, our nature, the diseases we carry, and troublingly for the Victorian Christian, what did it say about the universal Christian God? Darwin, and many who carried on his work, would start to wonder if the laws that shaped physical evolution could shape human psychology and even civilization itself. That's an interesting rabbit hole to go down. If man is a thinking animal, perhaps he does less thinking via free will and instead creates the society that evolution forces him to. Perhaps free will operates in the society and according to the constraints of evolutionary psychology. If so, the human mind becomes more of a self-reflective spectator, watching the things its body does, than inventing a rationale to claim that it made the body do the thing, as a post-hoc justification. I once called Darwin's theory of evolution the greatest earthquake in human history, perhaps as important as fire. That's not an idle comment. Properly understood, Darwin gives humans the possibility to understand their very existence the way no other theory or invention comes close to matching. The implications of it can be existentially terrifying. Darwin was laying out the framework for understanding if there is even a you that has free will, the thing that supposedly makes humans unique, that gives rise to religion, justice, morality, and even our very sense of being. The philosopher Waller scrutinised the issues in his excellent work, The Natural Selection Autonomy. Philosopher John Lemos kindly summarised the issues Waller considered in an excellent paper called Evolution and Free Will, a defence of Darwinian non-naturalism. Quote, It begins by outlining three traditional positions on autonomy and moral responsibility. The three traditional views Waller considers are 1. Libertarianism We are uncaused causes of our actions. As such, we are autonomous and morally responsible. He notes that this view has been defended by Campbell and Roderick Chisholm, among others. 2. Hard determinism All our choices are causally determined by genetic and environmental factors beyond our control. Thus, we are not autonomous and we are not morally responsible. He notes that this view has been defended by Skinner and John Hospers. Compatibilism. Even though all our choices are causally determined by genetic and environmental factors beyond our control, we are still autonomous and morally responsible. He says that Daniel Dennett and Harry Frankfurt hold this view. Waller's own position is that we are autonomous, but not morally responsible. He argues that the sort of autonomy we have, natural autonomy, that is shared with non-human animals, is not the sort of autonomy that is compatible with moral responsibility. End quote. That's a big claim, with the implication that your brain 
is basically good enough to choose outcomes in the way a lot of animals are, but to a more sophisticated level. But you are then only fantasizing about other choices you could have made. You create an illusion of self and an illusion of freedom. Most people, being animals with the same evolutionary constraints, will act in a roughly similar way in similar circumstances. For example, hungry people will seek food. They will do whatever it is necessary to get it, including theft. Not because they are immoral, but because evolution has no use for any animal stupid enough to refuse food when it needs it, just because of some imaginary notion of property rights or religion. Evolution has led to very effective mechanisms for humans to try and get as much high-calorie food as often as possible. You can kid yourself that your willpower chooses whether to eat and what, but you are just the surfer on a wave that runs from the deep ocean to the beach. That can lead to social Darwinism of the most awful kinds, or nihilism, or an acceptance that free will and morality are not real. Now I'm not saying this is right, or even that Darwin went this far, just that he identified a framework in which this is a possible outcome. The debate about the role of evolution in shaping free will, society, and human psychology rages to this day. Darwin shattered the distance between man the thinking being and the animal environment. You cannot be a rational independent actor because you are an animal and you live in an environment that not only affects you but has shaped your species and your society over vast timescales. It's not a topic to cover in a short podcast episode. The reason I'm teasing it a little here is to show you that the little pebbles Darwin is kicking at on his voyage would one day become vast landslides. Darwin the naturalist was interested in Australia, even if he was becoming a bit bored with seeing eucalyptus trees. Darwin the geologist was also having a whale of a time. If you loved looking at sandstone gullies, boy, was New South Wales a great place to go. Why bother going back to Tahiti when you can speculate on ancient wave action on sandstone, eh? Darwin, the social observer, became rather disenchanted with the state of colonial society. He could see the opportunities for better food and living standards, but he was deeply troubled by the staggeringly brutal treatment of prisoners. He compared their situation to slavery and was horrified to be served dinner by people he'd seen brutally whipped the day before. He might be snobbish and have an Anglo-centric view of the world, in a manner typical of an English gentleman in the 1830s, but he hated cruelty and slavery with a passion. He fretted that Australian society was already deeply divided and obsessed with wealth, feared that the young Australian children of free settlers would have to intermix with the criminal settlers and thought it would just make the society worse. He felt that as a punishment, the colonies were a failure, and they didn't reform the criminals, just force them to have the outward appearance of conformance. He was also uncertain about the long-term economic viability of the continent. 
He had expected it to be a new United States, but instead, quote, The rapid prosperity and future prospects of this colony are to me, not understanding these subjects, very puzzling. The two main exports are wool and whale oil, and to both of these productions there is a limit. The country is totally unfit for canals, and therefore there is a not very distant point beyond which the land carriage of wool will not repay the expense of shearing and tending sheep. Pasture everywhere is so thin that settlers have already pushed far into the interior. Moreover, the country further inland becomes extremely poor. Agriculture, on account of the droughts, can never succeed on an extended scale. Therefore, so far as I can see, Australia must ultimately depend upon being a centre for commerce for the Southern Hemisphere and perhaps on her future manufactories. Possessing coal, she always has the moving power at hand from the habitable country extending along the coast and from her English extraction, she is sure to be a maritime nation. I formerly imagined that Australia would rise to be as grand and powerful a country as North America, but now it appears to me that such future grandeur is rather problematical. End quote. Of course, he couldn't foresee the great agricultural revolutions or the impact of trains, mechanisation, fertiliser and electricity in the 20th century. Still, his comments about reliance on coal and trade are spot on. But his gentleman's background and class meant he was naturally anti-social mobility, so the idea of a society that gave convicts the chance of freedom and making money was not one he'd be naturally comfortable with. The biggest thing that struck him, though, remained his trek through the Blue Mountains and the observation of the kangaroo rat, also called a potoroo, as well as electric-huge rosellas and sulphur-crested cockatoos, the sea lion ant and the platypus. This is perhaps the point at which Darwin really had the idea of evolution and his belief in God shaken. Not in Galapagos or Tahiti, it was the strange world of Australia that really sparked ideas. On the 19th of January, he reflected, quote, In the dusk of the evening, I took a stroll along a chain of ponds, which in this dry country represent the course of a river, and had the good fortune to see several of the famous platypus. They were diving and playing about the surface of the water, but showed very little of their bodies, so that they might easily have been mistaken for many water rats. A little time before this, I had been lying on a sunny bank and was reflecting on the strange character of the animals in this country as compared with the rest of the world. An unbeliever in anything beyond his own reason might exclaim, surely two distinct creators must have been at work. Their object, however, has been the same and certainly the end in each case is complete. End quote. As he watched the sea lion ants, he mused, quote, Now what would the disbeliever say to this? Would any two workmen ever hit on so beautiful, so simple, and yet so artificial a contrivance? It cannot be thought so. The one hand 
has surely worked throughout the universe. End quote. Why would a single creator design bodies so uniquely different in vastly different parts of the world, yet with such clear and common characteristics and behaviours? Darwin knew his notebooks would be read by his Christian relatives at home, so he tacked in the it cannot be thought so, yet the long road to evolution by natural selection was already underway. Speaking of long roads, everyone on the voyage was sick of it. The original three-year mission was now coming up to its fifth year, and even Captain Fitzroy was writing to the Admiralty to say the crew needed to come home, especially Darwin, whom Fitzroy feared was nearing breaking point. The six-day horse ride in 40-degree sun can't have helped, and when HMS Beagle finally moved down the coast, Darwin was hit with intense seasickness. Or at least everyone assumes it was seasickness. Many modern doctors disagree. Darwin would be a very sick man during his life, and in the Australian Medical Journal, Dr. Heyman has proposed Darwin suffered from a debilitating condition. Quote, Nor was seasickness the cause of his lifelong illness, as some of Darwin's colleagues thought. As described above, Darwin's illness was present before he sailed on the Beagle, when he was ashore in South America, and during his excursion from Sydney to Bathurst, and it worsened after he returned to England. I have proposed that Darwin's illness was caused by a cyclic vomiting syndrome, CVS, a little known but well-defined disorder linked to abnormalities of mitochondrial DNA. Although generally regarded as a childhood disease, CVS frequently persists into adult life and may appear for the first time in adulthood. It is correctly termed a syndrome as people with CVS vary in their symptomology, depending presumably on the exact nature of the mtDNA abnormality and the proportion of affected mitochondria. Collectively, patients with this disorder have the same range of bizarre symptoms experienced by Darwin. Many experience motion sickness and are limited in their ability to travel. CVS is characterised by periods without symptoms. Darwin travelled on horseback for 400 miles in Argentina and in South America he crossed the Andes twice. In Australia, as mentioned earlier, he travelled more than 270 kilometres in six days on horseback with high temperatures and bushfires and in Tasmania he climbed Mount Wellington. His illness at this time of his life was typical of CVS. Episodes of illness are interposed with periods of completely normal health. Later in life, episodes or cycles may become more frequent and even become confluent with illness lasting for weeks or months. Severe motion sickness is frequently a feature of the condition and may act as a trigger, bringing on a full cycle of nausea, retching, vomiting, headache and abdominal pain. Exhaustion, both physical and mental, can bring on an episode, and it was probably physical exhaustion from horse riding in the heat that caused him to be confined to bed for a day during his trip to Bathurst. End quote. In other words, 
If true, Darwin was a very sick man with a genetic condition that was worsened by travel. Yet he forced himself onto one of the toughest expeditions imaginable for nearly five years and still managed to perform science. The highest quality was climbing up mountains. Like the Flying Dutchman, Darwin and HMS Beagle ploughed endlessly onwards across the ocean waves. Van Diemen's Land, more of Australia, then to the Keeling Islands. I did say at the start of the Darwin episodes that we wouldn't cover everything. The Keeling Islands were fascinating for geology, coral reef formation and endless new kinds of wildlife. At least here, Darwin got time to sit on a beach drinking from a coconut and watching crabs, although he did manage to sting his face with some coal. From there, the Beagle reached the Ile de France, or Mauritius, as it had been recently renamed by the British when they conquered it from France in 1810. It was also familiar civilization to Darwin. Quote, I spent the greater part of the next day in walking about the town and visiting different people. The town is of considerable size and is said to contain 20,000 inhabitants. The streets are very clean and regular. Although the island has been so many years under the English government, the general character of the place is quite French. Englishmen speak to their servants in French, and the shops are all in French. Indeed, I should think that Calais or Boulogne was much more Anglified. There is a very pretty little theatre in which operas are excellently performed. We were also surprised at seeing large booksellers' shops with well-stored shelves. Music and reading bespeak our approach to the old world of civilization. For, in truth, both Australia and America are new worlds. End quote. After a brief climb to yet another mountain peak, and plenty of geographical study, Darwin was in a position to complete one of the major objectives of the expedition, to understand how and why coral reefs formed. He had seen the three types he needed, a barrier reef at Tahiti, an atoll at the Keeling Islands, and finally a fringing reef off the volcanic island of Mauritius. Coral only grows in warmer waters at shallow depths. The growth of corals on top of long dead corals at a few feet in height pointed to a gradual sinking of the shelf they were growing on before it dropped off suddenly into the ocean depths. A volcano rose, allowing a reef to form around the fringes before the sudden drop off to the deep ocean, then slowly subsided into the waves, leaving a barrier reef and finally disappeared leaving the atoll. It was both a testament to the power of geology, but also to the tireless efforts of minuscule life forms. As Darwin said, quote, throughout the group of islands, every single atom, even from the most minute particle to the large fragments of rock, bear the stamp of once having been subjected to the power of organic arrangement. Captain Fitzroy at the distance of but a little more than a mile from the shore, sounded with a line 7,200 feet long and found no bottom. Hence we must consider this island as the summit 
of a lofty mountain, to how great a depth or thickness the work of the coral animal extends is quite uncertain. Under this view, we must look at a lagoon island as a monument raised by myriads of tiny architects to mark the spot where a former land lies buried in the depths of the ocean. End quote. Life doesn't just happen on the top of the world. It is a part of shaping it as well as being shaped by it. We are part of the great biosphere of the earth, an ancient, powerful interaction between chemicals, geological processes and life itself. Darwin would describe the wonder of it all brilliantly in his book On the Origin of Species. Quote, there is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers, having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that, whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. End quote. It hints at the really big tension involved between physics and evolution and the nature of change in the universe and in life. The more you understand evolution, the more questions it makes you ask about reality. HMS Beagle was touching familiar roots at last. St. Helena was the next stop. Darwin loved St. Helena. The geology was fascinating and it was a great opportunity to study English and Welsh plants that had been transported to see how they had thrived in an alien environment. Napoleon fans are often only familiar with St. Helena from the Emperor's unhappy exile and it can unfairly colour perceptions. For Darwin, it was a place of wonder and discovery with much volcanic evidence to enjoy, wild valleys, cultivated gardens and so much more. As he said, quote, When quietly walking along the shady paths and admiring each successive view, I wished to find language to express my ideas. Epithet after epithet was found too weak to convey to those who have not visited the intertropical regions the sensation of delight which the mind experiences. I have said that the plants in a hothouse fail to communicate a just idea of the vegetation, yet I must recur to it. The land is one great wild, untidy, luxuriant hothouse made by nature for herself, but taken possession of by man, who has studied it with gay houses and formal gardens. How great would be the desire in every admirer of nature to behold, if such were possible, the scenery of another planet. Yet to every person in Europe, it may be truly said that the distance of only a few degrees from his native soil, the glories of another world opened to him. In my last walk, I stopped again and again to gaze on these beauties and endeavoured to fix it in my mind forever, an impression which at the time I knew sooner or later must fail. End quote. Then the persistent HMS Beagle went on. She had one last great trip to make. Because of the way the winds worked, in an almost painfully ironic turn, HMS Beagle sailed across the Atlantic to Brazil, all that way, 
all that time suffering and struggle around the Cape and across the Pacific just to end up where they started. Darwin was not exactly thrilled, even if he understood it was a necessary step home, and he spent his time writing a furious denunciation of slavery and colonial cruelty. Hard as it is to remember sometimes, after a long involvement in the slave trade, by this point Britain was hugely anti-slavery and was leading an international effort to destroy the trade and institution whilst the Americans, Spanish, Arabs, Chinese, Africans, Malay and Indonesians all clung on to it. Darwin made a last passionate invective against slavery before they left. Quote, it is argued that self-interest will prevent excessive cruelty as if self-interest protected our domestic animals, which are far less likely than degraded slaves to stir up the rage of their savage masters. It is an argument long since protested against with noble feeling and strikingly exemplified by the ever-illustrious Humboldt. It is often attempted to palliate slavery by comparing the state of slaves with our poor countrymen. If the misery of our poor be caused not by the laws of nature, but by our institutions, great is our sin. But how this bears on slavery I cannot see, as well might the use of the thumbscrew be defended in one land by showing that men in another land suffered from some dreadful disease. Those who look tenderly at the slave owner and with a cold heart at the slave never seem to put themselves in the position of the latter. What a cheerless prospect, with not even a hope of change. Picture to yourself the chance, ever hanging over you, of your wife and your little children, those objects which nature urges even the slave to call his own, being torn from you and sold like beasts to the first bidder. And these deeds are done and palliated by men who profess to love their neighbour as themselves, who believe in God and pray that his will be done on earth. It makes one's blood boil, yet heart tremble to think that we Englishmen and our American descendants, with their boastful cry of liberty, have been and are so guilty. But it is a consolation to reflect that we have at least made a greater sacrifice than ever made by any nation to expiate our sin. End quote. Finally, HMS Beagle left Brazil. By September, they were in the Azores, and finally, on the 2nd of October, 1836, Darwin was back in England. The long, nearly five-year voyage was at an end. We barely scratched the surface of what Darwin did and saw, but we have seen some of the crucial elements. Between the fossils, geology and coral reefs, Darwin would be coming home knowing he was now a rising star in the scientific community. It would take a long time for his most famous work to be written. His arrival was a huge event. There were mountains of materials and evidence to study and classify properly. His proud father kindly arranged investments to allow Darwin to become an independent gentleman scientist. He was not tied to an institution or forced to work for a salary. 
He could do science for the sake of science. He was soon talking to Charles Babbage, Charles Lyell, Richard Owens, John Gould and many more. He could get on with life. He wasn't entirely sure what life would be or where. He still thought he might go to America and Mexico for geology and was torn over whether he should live in expensive London or the more boring countryside. Above all, he was thinking of getting married. And, like any good scientist, he decided to weigh up his options. He kindly laid out the pros and cons of getting married in his various notes. They often presented as if they were a single letter, but they weren't, and included a lot of half-formed thoughts. Quote, Advantages to marry. Children, if it please God. Constant companion and friend in old age, who will feel interested in one. Object to be beloved and played with. Better than a dog, anyhow. Home and someone to take care of house. Charms of music and female chit-chat. These things good for one's health, but terrible loss of time. My God, it is intolerable to think of spending one's whole life like a neuter bee. Working, working and nothing after all. No, no, won't do. Imagine living all one's days solitarily in smoky, dirty London house. Only picture to yourself a nice, soft wife on a sofa with a good fire and books and music, perhaps. Compare this vision with the dingy reality of Greater Melbourne Street. Marry, marry, marry QED. Reasons not to marry. Freedom to go where one liked. Choice of society and little of it. Conversation of clever men at clubs. Not being forced to visit relatives and to bend in every trifle. To have the expense and anxiety of children, perhaps quarrelling, loss of time, cannot read in the evenings, fatness and idleness, anxiety and responsibility, less money for books, if many children forced to gain one's bread. But then it is very bad for one's health to work too much. Perhaps my wife won't like London. Then the sentence is banishment and degradation into indolent idle fool. It being proved necessary to marry. When? Sooner or later. The governor says soon, otherwise bad if one has children. One's character is more flexible. One's feelings more lively. And if one does not marry soon, one misses so much good pure happiness. But then, if I married tomorrow, there would be an infinity of trouble and expense in getting and furnishing a home fighting about no society, morning calls, awkwardness, loss of time every day. Without one's wife was an angel and made one keep industrious. Then how should I manage all my business if I were obliged to go every day walking with my wife? You, I would never know French or see the continent or go to America or go up in a balloon or take a solitary trip in Wales. Poor slave. You will be worse off than a negro. And then horrid poverty. Without one's wife was better than an angel and had money. Never mind, my boy. Cheer up. One cannot live this solitary life with groggy old age, friendless and cold and childless, staring in one's face, already beginning to wrinkle. Never mind. Trust to chance. Keep a sharp lookout. There is many a happy slave. End quote. Wasn't that romantic? And 
a surprising choice of metaphors given his hatred of slavery. To be fair, being worried about not having money to spend on books is a pain near and dear to my heart. He soon moved from deciding he needed to get married to someone to getting engaged with his first cousin, Emma Wedgwood. And in January 1839, the couple were married by their cousin, Reverend John Allen Wedgwood. Even early in the relationship, though, Emma knew her husband's idea of faith and his belief in God were changing rapidly. She was willing to accept it as long as he was honest with her, and they managed to stay devoted despite the growing religious chasm. Darwin had hard work ahead to publish his Beagle journals and carefully study the works of Thomas Malthus on population, which were crucial in spurring some of his ideas about evolution. I've mentioned him before in the podcast on various occasions, and even today he remains influential in some circles, like the Limits to Growth movement. Throughout the 1840s, Darwin would be churning out scientific papers and books. After all, he had sketched the idea of coral reefs, and needed to turn it into a finished work. He had geology to do, and he sketched out a plan in 1842 of descent of species by modification. The greatest idea of human history was brewing. Darwin had the evidence. He had the experience. He had the scientific connections. And the whole of history waited with bated breath whilst he spent eight years in intense study of barnacles. Why, yes, that was the car of history accidentally shifting into first gear on the highway to progress whilst doing 70. So there we are. There would be no turning back. Once the barnacles were in the rearview mirror, human thought about our place in the world and how we got there would be changed forever. The theory would be up there with the taming of fire, the birth of writing and the smelting of iron. It gave birth to the modern scientific mindset and has been shown to have applicability in almost every sphere of thought. Darwinism is a mechanism for explaining success and failure. Actually, the theory is a whole lot more complicated than that. And Darwin's theory of evolution, as he set it out, was the start of the real journey of modern evolutionary theory, not the end point. Now, I will clearly need a few episodes to cover the theory and how it detonated like a bombshell. But that won't happen until we are in the 1850s. For now, just remember that we've done our historical earthquake series and can move into the 1840s. Darwin will be busy with his wife, his children, his books and his barnacles, toiling away in the background. Next up, of course, is the anniversary special. And I still need to do a recap episode to tie up all the stuff from 1815 to 1840, so you know where we are as we launch into the hungry 40s. It was a big decade with lots of action, science, art, war, sex, fun, disease, starvation, and brightly coloured men's trousers. Okay, thanks for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com follow me on twitter at age of victoria visit the website at www.ageofvictoria.com 
ageofvictoriapodcast.com. The show also has a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes less time than making a coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes. Or you can go to Patreon and search for Age of Victoria Podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.